Blog Talk Radio. Mets fans, and welcome to the Happy Recap Radio Show for this March 26, 2017, the last edition of the Happy Recap for Spring Training 2017. That's right, folks. By the time you hear us next Sunday again, the Mets will have broken camp and be getting ready for opening day on Monday, the 3rd of April, and by golly, couldn't be coming soon enough. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about, a lot of great Mets stuff to cover. But I want to bring in my guest right now. He's a good friend of the show. Faith and Fear and Flushing, of course, is the website. And Piazza is the book. Greg Prince, good to talk to you, my friend. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I mean, certainly, you know, it's one of those things I was thinking about before the show. We talk about the importance, uh, and and we'll definitely talk about the book here in a bit, but I'll do a little spring train talk first. But when we talk about Mike Piazza in a few minutes, for as important to this franchise as he was, to as important uh, an era that he represents of this ball club, uh, your book is on a very short list on this particular subject. Uh, about Piazza about or about Mike, that era? About Piazza. Well, to uh, some extent, both. Yeah, but yeah, Piazza I guess, is a, yeah. a common topic. I guess so. Uh, maybe it just hasn't sunk in that... He's history <laughs> in a baseball sense by now. Uh, you know, in, in a way, and I guess, uh, as they say, your mileage may vary, but uh, it, it does seem like not that long ago he was playing at Shea Stadium and hitting home runs and leading the Mets uh, to heights where they hadn't been in a long time. And, of course, that was a while ago now. So maybe uh, that, that particular era just seems... Uh, you know, a little too close for some writers to have taken a second look at. I think that was one of the, the motivating factors here because the, the book deals with not, not just Piazza, but the era in which he played, including the year before he came to the Mets or you know, that, that segment of the year in the 1990s where the Mets were floundering, to say the least. And you know, it, it struck me that, you know, that that was a fascinating time for baseball as well as for the Mets, not the most encouraging of times in the first part of the decade, but they certainly made up for it in the second half of the decade. And I think you've seen that, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of as an allegory here with, with the Hall of Fame voting, that a lot of the players who excelled in that period have been kind of left waiting or have been slow to be voted in. So maybe when you put all that together, there's just been a little bit of, I don't know, putting them on the back burner, putting that period on the back burner and maybe, you know, who knows, maybe this is the first of many to come that will uh, you know, look at Mike, look at the nineties, look at the, at those Mets. As I, as I look at my, as, literally, as I look at my bookshelf here, which contains many books, Met books from over the years, I, I see two Mike Piazza books sitting next to each other, yours. And right next to it is the one that Mike wrote himself. It's, it's just not a, there, there wasn't a, there wasn't a glut of books. Let's put it this way where I go, Oh man, not another Piazza book. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's it it feels like you know it feels like a fresh subject. That I re- I mean, dude, you could rewrite the phone book. I'm going to read it, man. I mean, that's just I, I enjoy your writing that much. But uh, 
I, I'm really glad that this was a subject that you tackled this time around. This, you know, just the way you interwove everything together, um, you know, I think has come out to a great book that I'm looking forward to talking about here. But I want to hit hit you up a little bit on the spring training, a little bit on the season upcoming before we do that. I know, sure. I, I know you much like me, you know, not a uh, not a huge fan of the spring training. And boy, you know, I think with the WBC, as exciting as the WBC actually was this time around. Um, it certainly made uh, you know makes uh, for a longer feeling spring training. Uh, how excited are you to get out of games that don't count here after next weekend? No, I don't think it really hit me until I was watching today's exhibition game that this is going to end soon. Uh, eight days from now, we have a, a real baseball game to sink our teeth into. You know, so spring training would be great on its own, and I would include the WBC with that. If there was nothing else that it was leading to, you'd say, hey, this is fun. We like baseball. We like, you know, seeing these minor leaguers. We get a kick out of the veterans who are trying to make it. But after the novelty wears off, which I have to say, after all these years, I find is pretty much over by the end of February, all you want is the end game, and the end game is opening day. So, um you know, I'm excited, and especially, you know, that Knockwood, this is a good-looking team that we have to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing. I mean, obviously, there have been a couple of injury issues this week between Ligaris and the almost seemingly permanently injured uh, Stephen Matz. I'm not saying that to insult him. It just seems does get hurt a lot. I mean, the, you know, the reputation speaks for itself. But, um, the you know, there's certainly been some good stories out of spring training as well, some guys you weren't expecting to – be lights out, be lights out. You've got uh, the the uh, the depth of this team showing between Lugo and his performance in the WBC, and now Gazelman uh, actually making the rotation coming out of spring training. But I'm with you 100%. I was watching this morning's game. I just said this morning on the West Coast anyway. Sunday morning baseball, as I like to call it. But um, the I was watching the game this morning for me anyway, and um, thinking the exact same thing, going. You know, if I'm watching a game after, you know, if I'm next Sunday morning game, I can watch pretty much in two weeks. Uh, that one's going to count. And uh, that, that's going to be pretty cool. We're, we're almost a baseball that counts. Or as the quote I like to use from uh, the uh, much maligned and not often seen uh, baseball movie, Mr. Baseball with Tom Selleck, actual baseball is actually happening. Uh, pretty much mm-hmm. is the quote I break out every opening day because that's exactly what I'm seeing, what I've seen uh, for the past month has been that fallacy that just, you know, it's that, it's that, it's that point you're at that point in withdrawal of, of baseball addiction at the beginning of spring training that you'll take what, what it is. And then you realize, Oh, that's right. This is the, this is the cheap alternative. This is uh this isn't the real thing yet. And let's get to it. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, it's, te- it's time the team has used, but, um, and I think uh, Mr. Harvey is probably most appreciative of the fact that uh, spring training is still going on, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the season. And I got, I got to tell you, Greg, I'm kind of optimistic. It's no reason not to be other than, you know, good old fashioned superstition and uh, all kinds of folk ways that say, Oh, you know, you can't look forward to anything with this team, but uh, yeah, I got a couple of, you know, precautionary sidelinings, notwithstanding, and you know what? You're going to have injuries anytime. You might as well get them out of the way early if, if we're lucky and give the guys who are experiencing them time to heal. Um, this is a talented team, and this is a a solid, not to, say, to necessarily sound like Ethan Hernandez, although they're worse things you could sound like. This is a veteran team 
uh, with, you know, enough pockets of youth. So, you know, it emits vibrancy and also experience. And, you know, guys who have been there, who have shown us the ability to win for the last two years, I go back now and then and look at the way 2016 unfolded, and I'm shocked that this team made the playoffs. Not in a, they were, yeah, not not that they were never good enough, but you know the trajectory the season was on, the injuries that inflicted them, and you know I really had hoped in August when they were flailing that you know, there's enough in this team based on those who were around in 2015 to kind of put it together. And you say things like that, and you're not really sure you believe it because it sounds like wishful thinking, but that's really what happened, I think. Uh, you know, that there was just enough, you know, winning in the room, if, if uh, I can borrow from Charlie Sheen, uh, that they knew what they were doing. They didn't give up. And there was, you know, and, you know again, we, we talk about the Mets, we talk about pitching. Pitching last September was Noah Syndergaard, Bartolo Colon, two guys you'd never heard of, and fifth starter du jour. Uh, but they put it together anyway. Now we show up here. Yeah, Colon, unfortunately, is in his Atlanta uniform. But the guys we were counting on, you know, give, give or take uh, Stephen Matz's issues, uh, are all back. Uh, coming along, as we saw with Harvey today, DeGrom looks great. Uh, and we have those two pitchers who – Nobody had ever heard of a year ago at this time, other than their families and Baseball America junkies, uh, Robert Gazelman and Seth Lugo. Uh, you put all of that together. If you had nothing else, you'd say, okay, at least we're going to be in these games because we can pitch. And then you look at this lineup and you, you look at Cespedes. And you know, some do something in today's game. And I was just thinking, like, God, I'm glad they re-signed him because I would hate to try to replicate uh, success that we've had the last two years without this guy. And, you know, once they had Cespedes in the fold, there wasn't really that much more to do. And, you know, it's, it's odd that we're going to be going into the season with probably no more than one completely new face um, on the team because this is, you know, Cespedes was uh, in place, so they got Neil Walker back. Uh, everybody else was kind of already there. And, you know, this team is, is poised, I think. I feel better about it, honestly, than I did a year ago when they were coming off the World Series. Maybe I was just still in shock that they had gone to the World Series. But, you know, but, and again, they could disappoint us because anything is possible and it's a long season and all those cliches. But uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, and I mean, I think, too, I mean, if there's one thing that I've that I've actually really enjoyed the spring training, um as far as, you know, obviously seeing a lot of the familiar faces, but, you know, as much as I'm looking forward to 2017, I, I always have a little bit of an eye on, I'm not the, 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 you know, as you meant, you know, the baseball America prospect nerd, but I enjoy, I enjoy keeping a little, you know, closer eye on the, the minor leagues and some, but by golly, it's been exciting watching uh, Mr. Rosario and, and Mr. Smith this spring and kind of thinking the the future with both of those guys. You can definitely see, and it's so rare in Mets baseball, but you, you can, kind of see the evolution in progress, the wheels turning a little bit, because you're, you're not going to be leaning on those guys unless something terribly unforeseen happens. It's not one of those, it's opening day and Kelvin Chapman is the starting second baseman, to use an example that I just kind of 
remember as, as one of those rookie you know, gets a break, but he's really not ready, and it shows uh, Rosario is going to have all the time he needs. He may not need that much time, but, you know, we're, we are set at shortstop, and we are set at second base, and you know, we have a first baseman. You know, again, injuries uh, notwithstanding, we were able to fill in a third base, which, you know, there wasn't that long ago where if you said, we don't know when David Wright is going to be coming back, it would have been like, well, you know, there's half the season down the tubes. You know, the Mets are no longer relying on one guy anymore. So, and the one guy they're yeah, relying can, on is in Japan, so we can't get him back, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no more Campbell call-ups. Yeah, yeah, the, the Campbells and the Cecilianis of the world and uh, – Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, it's just a better class of even, you know, third-line players, your, your, your Ty Kellys and your Matt Reynoldses and so forth. So, and again, you know, this thing can, can turn on a dime. And suddenly guys we have not considered who are slated to be Binghamton Rumble Ponies might be here before we know it. But, um, you know, it looks good. But also, but, but to your point, you know, Rosario and Smith are, you can see them, falling into place. You could see Cicchini falling into place uh, potentially if he proves worthy at second base. So, you know, it's not like the guys who are going to be playing out their contracts, they'll leave and it'll be a desperate situation. You know, you'll have guys who are ready to come in, you know, on paper. You never know how these things work, but, you know, so so often it's just a matter of let's see if we can get by the next homestand and maybe we'll have somebody back. It, it, It feels a little more solidified, uh, not ju- not just the 2017 Mets, but the state of the organization, and, and maybe someday we'll we'll look back at the Sandy Alderson and Terry Collin years, and say, boy, those guys really knew what they were doing, which was not something I was prepared to admit a couple of years ago, but but we'll gladly uh, look back at should that be the case. Well, the interesting thing, of course, look at the season, and ter- if the team plays to expectations as to playing through injuries. Uh, Terry Collins is, you know, particularly uh, positioned to start taking some Met managerial records and uh, jumping into second place on uh, all-time wins. I think he's going to pass uh, the season Bobby Valentine on his way to Davy Johnson. Uh, which, yeah, if you had told me when we hired him that he was going to wind up potentially the Mets winning as manager ever, I'm not sure I would have stopped laughing by now. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't even thought about the wins. I know that he will pass both of them for most games managed by late May, should he remain in his position. Um, Yeah, it's shocking. (laughs) Terry Collins seemed like a caretaker in 2011, and, you know, I saw no need to make any long-term commitments to him. And, you know, if if you read uh, Steve Ketman's book, you you saw that uh, Sandy Alderson wasn't ready to make any long-term commitments to him. But, you know, I, I always say the same thing about Collins. You never read either an attributed or a blind quote from any player who complains about Terry Collins. And that, more so than anything he's done in the one lost column, may be the most remarkable thing in New York. That there's, you know, Bobby Valentine had players willing to admit their unhappiness with him, uh, Davey Johnson, who I think we all revere, had people willing to admit their unhappiness with him. I can remember that there were people not crazy about Gil Hodges, you know, as sainted as his memory is, and deservedly so. I mean, everybody you know, has a reason to be 
upset with their supervisor, shall we say. Uh, and maybe somebody has been annoyed with Terry Collins all these years, but it hasn't come out in the press. And that is a a big signifier to me that this guy has done a great job. You know, whatever you think in any given seventh or eighth inning, whatever move he makes, and you say, why did he do that? He cost us the game. That's another story. But, you know, he is, he is going to surpass uh, first Valentine, then Johnson in longevity. And that alone is an accomplishment. You just, you know, whoa, we've had, you know, the, the Mount Rushmore of Met managers, you know, Casey Stengel for, for getting this started, Gil Hodges for 69 and growing the franchise in, in, into an adult, uh, Davey Johnson for the dominant years, and Bobby Valentine for you know, revitalizing the franchise and, and just be, being the character that he was. And there really isn't that much competition besides Terry Collins is now in that discussion now and forever, especially if they win something this year. So, uh, hats off. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. And to give you, just to give, he's 55 wins behind Bobby for number two. And it uh, looks like 114 behind Davey Johnson. That being said, he is, um, 25 ahead of, uh, Bobby for the most losses also. <laughs> so he holds that position already. But uh, yeah, Terry Collins has been, uh, you know, certainly a, a polarizing um, amongst the fan base, but not as seemingly polarizing amongst the players. One of the uh, as we, as we kind of transition, let's kind of head head into that time capsule, if you will, and and head back to the '90s. Um, I, I want to transition by talking about a, a man who passed away this week. I'll admit I have slaughtered him more than a few times on this show as my least favorite Mets manager ever. Although, um, you know, I've, I've been very careful to say, especially um, after the tragic incident with his granddaughter a few years ago, that, uh, you know, I respect uh, Dallas Green as a human being. I respected him as a, as a baseball man. I just didn't agree with how he managed our particular team. Talk a little bit about Dallas Green, the baseball man. Uh, your, your partner, Jason Fry, wrote a fantastic article on Faith and Fear uh, earlier this week. Talk a little bit about Dallas Green, the baseball manager, and what he stepped into, because you know, as much as I disliked him, he stepped into a load of crap when he was stepped into this team in 1993. Yeah, D- Dallas Green, I, I looked at, I guess it was the wire service picture that, that went out, or perhaps it was the one that MLB put out, of him in a Mets jacket sitting at his desk, smiling. He had his uh, civilian clothes underneath. He was wearing a Mets cap, so it must have been in the off season. Maybe they resigned him. And I just, it just brought me back to those mid-90s days thinking, it's so weird that Dallas Green's the manager of the Mets. You can never quite get used to it. There's some guys, no matter how long they're doing it, just seem like they wandered in from the wrong team. And that's always how I felt about Dallas because he was so heavily identified with the Phillies and had been out of uniform at that point, for about four years, he managed the Yankees for less than a season and didn't work out there. And he hadn't managed since 1981. And in between, uh, you know, he helped build the Cubs into a contender. So, uh, and then I, you know, I don't think I was more than vaguely aware that he had been a scout with the Mets. Uh, I don't think he'd been there very long, but he was basically a manager in waiting, as it turned out. Um, you know, he, he succeeded Jeff Torborg, who I'm going to have to be careful because I imagine Jeff Torborg is, is up there in years, and I don't want to say anything that I'll feel bad about should there be any news. But Jeff Torborg, I guess it's 
I, I, I can say without without any fear of, of it sounding uh, off color, uh, was my least favorite Mets manager. And I would have been happy to have anybody come in. And Dallas Green came in. And, you know, he, he did what he could, I think, with those 93 Mets. And there wasn't much to do. He, you know, when I was uh, researching Piazza and, you know, the, the book starts in the early 90s, so the 1993 uh, is sort of a character in the, the story. Um, I was reminded that Dallas Green, I guess to put it kindly, took no guff <laughs> when it came to managing an underachieving uh, Mets team. And that team, and you could argue whether they were underachieving or they just weren't you know, built to achieve anything. But by late that season, he was just dogging them and kind of threw his hands up. And you know, I'm, I'm sure he was showing up every day and trying to put the best lineup out there he could. But you know, when you're, gosh, what was it? Something like 45 and 80 at the end of August, um, or 45 and 85. Um, you know, you're 40 games under with a month to go. I, I guess I can't blame you for being a little gallows humorish and morose. Um, well, he he hung in there with that team. Or, you know, the team that it became in the mid 90s. Uh, there, there was kind of a golden hour of the Dallas Green era, uh, 1995. They really got it together in the second half of that year. I mean, it was such a strange time in general because you had a strike, end one season too soon, and begin another season later than scheduled. So the Mets were still kind of trying to grope their way out of 1993, a 103-loss season. And by the time... Dallas had some pieces in place, you know, a promising young team, you know, the kind of players we're talking about. When we talk about Ahmed Rosario and Dom Smith, and we don't know what they'll be, but we assume they're going to be good players. That's who Dallas was kind of shepherding in the latter half of 95. Uh, you know, future stars, we probably, whether we realized it or not, you know, guys like Jeff Kent and Carl Everett and Edgardo Alfonso and Jason Isringhausen all made an all-star team five years later. Only one of them was still a Met, unfortunately, but the, the Mets had moved on themselves to, to better days. Uh, I, you know, I clearly remember you know, the, the Mets going off on this nice run August and September of that year, 95, and it was a big thing. So, so, sort of a proto-Mojo-Ryzen situation, if you will, or a proto-who-let-the-dogs-out uh, Hootie and the Blowfish, uh, Hold My Hand. That was like the the Mets' fight song, if you will. Not much of a fight song, I suppose, but it was what they played after wins. And I remember reading in the paper that even Dallas Green is singing along. So, you know, he went with the flow, and he helped that team kind of take a step forward. Unfortunately, they took a step back (laughs) the next year. So that that will happen with young teams. Um, You know, he was, you know, we talked about Terry Collins as, as a caretaker, you know, early on, so Dallas Green was. Uh, you know, he's a, a well known, high profile caretaker, but ultimately, while the Mets organization was kind of figuring out, you know, what it what it had, Dallas Green was the guy to fill that seat. And, you know, he put it this way, Dallas Green had great moments of joy in his life and horrible moments of sorrow. The Mets weren't either one of those things. I think, you know, he was here Partly out of obligation, partly out of aggravation, and uh, you know he he did the job, and you know I, I can only echo what, what you said about uh, you know what happened to his granddaughter. It's just one of those terrible things you can imagine 
you know, any parent, any grandparent having to go through, uh, you know, she was you know, shot and killed, you know, when the lunatic went after Gabrielle Giffords in Arizona six years ago, and, you know, everything you ever read said Dallas Green was never the same, and who would be? Um, if anybody is interested, I would recommend Dallas Green's book, The Mouth That Award, you know, it was written by, I, I forget who it was, a Philadelphia writer, I believe. Um, very entertaining. Took, you know, cer- certainly did not hold back on uh, those he had no use for. Didn't have many, many nice things to say about those he, uh, he managed or who succeeded him in New York. But, uh, you know, there's a very tender part uh, toward the end of the book talking about uh, his granddaughter and his family. So, you know, I, I join everybody in, in you know, wishing his family the best and trying to hold good thoughts for somebody who who did his best when the Mets were not at their best. And I think for, for me with, with uh, you know, especially that last year of Dallas Green, knowing who was managing Norfolk that year, it, it just, you know, and of course who is a you know, fan favorite coach and player with the Mets and Bobby Valentine. Um, it was, it was always tough for me going, when are they going to get rid of Dallas Green and bring up Bobby <laughs> Valentine? Come on, guys. Seriously, you've got Valentine at AAA. How are you? Uh, but, um, you know, the one thing, and it, it was very obvious in everything that you read coming from the national press, and this was a baseball lifer, Dallas Green. He he gave his heart and soul and, and left it all on the field as far as everything goes. And, yeah, he's definitely an unfortunate footnote in Mets history, but uh, certainly a, a um, you know, and one of the rare people to have played for the Mets and managed the Mets. But, uh, you know, certainly, yeah, you 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 hope you hope for good things for the family. You hope for healing and all those good things. And uh, you know it 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 is extremely tragic uh, that he had to spend the last few years of his life dealing with the uh, the after effects of that ridiculous shooting in Arizona. Uh, you know, just the fact that he was always I don't know if that that was the case this year, but he was most years was you know coming to Clearwater and still part of the Phillies family. Uh, you know. That is one of the nice things about being a baseball lifer that you have somewhere to go. I mean, I, uh, you know, I don't think he was active in any great sense with the Phillies anymore, but he was still listed as a special advisor or something like that. And I imagine, you know, he was consulted now and again. And you know, I say this about a lot of players who kind of hang on or wind up at, uh, you know, being Long Island Ducks or in, in the independent leagues, and you say, you know, what are they still doing there? It's like, well, why would you want to leave baseball? And, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, it, it kept Dallas Green uh, engaged, uh, just like keeps a lot of people engaged. So it's, it's an indication of, of the pull of the game. And, you know, the fact that so many people thought highly of him is, you know, probably a testament to his quality as a human being. Uh, yeah, and, and we're saying this about a guy who, uh, who wore a Phillies uniform more than anything else. He must have been okay in the end. Yeah, absolutely. appreciate you talking about that a little bit as we transition kind of back to the 90s. And let's start talking uh, about the book, Piazza. Uh, where was the – I mean, obviously, you've written a few books, and I also promised uh, a few people that I'm going to harass you about uh, Happier's Recap <laughs> Volume 2. So before we get into that, what's the status? Uh Volume two remains written in manuscript form. In fact, I updated it last year because one of the entries, this covers the years 74 to 86. One of the entries was Walt Terrell hitting two home runs. 
for those who, who don't know what we're talking about, uh, the happiest recap. I remember that game. Amazing games. Yeah. Walt, Walt Terrell, uh, I thought it was one of the 500 most amazing games in Mets history. Uh, first pitcher to hit two home runs in, in a game, in a, in a Mets victory. And, well, Walt Terrell reentered our consciousness last May when Noah Syndergaard hit two home runs in one game and, and they won uh, against the Dodgers. So I went back in to make that change, uh, and I ended up, I think this part of this was my procrastination on getting to work on Piazza. I went back and uh, updated and, and made some changes and edited and whatever. Uh, it's just a matter of working out some publishing and distribution stuff on my end and, and making it, you know, work from an economic sense. Uh, I have not stopped working on it. Volume two is, is literally done. And volume three, I've funny, you know, the, the Piazza book winds up covering some of the same stuff because volume three ends in 99. And obviously that is a big part of the Piazza story. So, you know, I'm pretty close to being done with that. Uh, this was all supposed to. This was all supposed to have been in print, you know, in, in my mind years ago. <laughs> At this point, I was, you know, the, the short story is I was working with a guy who helped me put it together, and he just, you know, couldn't do it anymore. And I need to make other arrangements, and it's always one of those things I'm kind of pushing aside and saying I got to get back to that. And the fact that. People still ask you about it. They still ask me about it. It makes me very happy. Uh, I want it to be read. Uh, I want, you know, again, it was originally conceived as a 50th anniversary project through 2011. Well, a lot of Mets baseball has come along since 2011. Uh, and notable Mets baseball, happy, thankfully. Yes. Many happiest recaps have been taken place since opening day 2012. So there's probably a, uh, you know, the, the volumes are named first base, second base, third base, home. Uh, a friend of mine uh, suggests uh, calling a fifth one curtain call. Uh, so I'm going to keep that in mind. But when I, believe me, when I, when I have actual news to report about uh, volume two, second base, uh, 74 to 86, you will be among the first I let know. And I think it will, it will happen fairly soon. Um, and I, I have some ideas. I'm just not ready to talk about them. But but the actual manuscript, the actual stuff has been written. Uh, those games have been played, and they have been researched, and uh, I feel good about it. So uh, that's what I can say. So uh, to you and to anybody who has asked you, whether in the United States or the United Kingdom, uh, I thank you. <laughs> so last year about this time last year we had you on of course amazing again was the book and of course talked about specifically the 2015 Mets now we head back a little bit in time of course to talk about a fant- you know, like I said a fantastic subject one that I don't think is written about enough and it's awesome because it's from a fan's perspective and that's the one thing I always tell tell people about your writing that, ha- that the few that are left that are unfamiliar with it if you want to read Mets writing and go if I could write that's totally what I would say um, th- this it's been cool to be able to read a book about Piazza from the pan- fan perspective, because you know again, like I said, for whatever reason, Mike Piazza not a not a common topic. I mean, I, I can guess what the genesis of I'll ask you what the genesis of writing the book was, but being as last year was fairly significant in the life of Mike Piazza and its relationship with the Mets, I kind of probably know the answer, but I'll I'll ask you because I want to hear it come from you. Sure. Uh. I had no plans to write this book. It hadn't occurred to me until January of 2016 when he was voted into the Hall of Fame after four tries. And 
on top of that, uh, the Mets said that they would retire his number, which I think we all knew was going to happen eventually, and we kind of deduced that they were waiting for the Hall of Fame thing to kick in. And not insignificantly, you know, Mike and the Hall of Fame said that he would be going in as a Met. So, you know, we had the whole package. Uh, and that alone probably would have been swell. And I think what really kind of pushed over the edge was the reaction or really the continued reaction where Mike Piazza was concerned among Mets fans uh, that every year that he did not get elected to the Hall of Fame starting in January of 2013, there was like a real burst of disgust, which isn't hard to get out of Mets fans, I suppose. But, you know, you're sitting around the middle of January and some guy who hasn't played a game for you in eight, nine, ten years uh, is not voted an honor. You might just shrug or say, gee, that's too bad. But it was, you know, it struck me as a real call among Mets fans. You know, you could count on if If the vote was announced at 6 o'clock, you could count by 6 o'clock and 30 seconds that Twitter would be filled up with, I'm going to call it outrage, but, you know, just discussed uh, why hasn't our guy been put in. You know, we, we knew how great this guy was. I think beyond that, I think, you know, we, we kind of know the reason he wasn't put in, but it, it didn't make it go down any easier. And I, I will say for me, the, the reason it was that much more galling was we had been through this only once before where we could look forward to a Met going into the Hall of Fame as a Met, no questions asked. That was 1992, Tom Seaver going in. And I think in our, in our minds, at least those of us who were around back then, uh, you know, we were primed for the process to kind of kick in. Okay, five years after Piazza is retired, we get to celebrate this moment. We get this nice, warm feeling. Well, we didn't get it. And then we didn't get it after six years. Then we didn't get it after seven years. Finally, it took eight years from the time Piazza retired, uh, during which the feeling only grew stronger. So, you know, sitting there in January of 2016, it, it struck me that there must be something more to this than just the fact that he was a really good player for us. There, there must be something about why he meant so much. And I guess the, the idea of a book became, you know, showing what it was like to live with out Piazza in the years that we knew there was a Piazza or a player like that, because I don't, I don't know that we were all sitting here in 1993 saying, if only we had Mike Piazza. But I, I kind of like the idea of showing the two paths, uh, the path that Piazza was on as a Dodger, as, as this rookie of the year who was breaking all kinds of first-year records, and the Mets who were falling through the floor in that period. And to kind of show, especially from the Mets' standpoint, but, you know, continuing to check in on Piazza, uh, showing how they were kind of both doing their thing, one trying to overcome the disaster of 93 you know, during the Dallas Green years, as it turns out, and the, the early Bobby Valentine years, and Piazza, who is the superstar in Los Angeles, who you know is basically you know Magic Johnson in baseball, I think, in terms of the, the stature he held in Los Angeles, coming to this point like Tom Seaver did in 1977, which was to say that you know, this franchise player is in a business dispute and he won't always be a Dodger, as it turns out, and machinations unfold and we get to probably the more familiar part, which is that, that day in May of 98, where after a 
holding action type of trade that the Dodgers make to the Marlins to send Mike Piazza into exile, um, the Mets get involved, and that's where they get Piazza, and that's where well, what I think we remember as you know the the best part of the '90s. Uh, if you're a Mets fan, uh, kicks in, and for the next four years, really, you know, the Piazza years are in effect. So that's basically how how the book came together. And and if I could just throw in the the, the back end of the book um, is about you know the institutionalization, if you will. Uh, or enshrinement of our memories, and you know the point where it becomes important to start thinking about that. At least important to us. You know, maybe some you know independent arbiter would say, "Well, no, what are you worried about this for?" But for us, uh, you know, we were concerned with how we said goodbye to him in 2005. You know, so few Mets ever get to say goodbye as players because they're always leaving as free agents or kind of shunted out the door. And, and Mike had a real honest-to-goodness farewell. He wasn't even retiring. And then, you know, all, all those little pieces along the way, you know, him coming back as a Padre, him coming back as an Oakland A, him kind of issuing his, his goodbye press release and uh, singling out the Mets, and then, you know, the Mets eventually bringing him back a few times, especially to put him in the Team Hall of Fame, which is one of those well-kept secrets the Mets have. And finally, you know, the big moment, which is January and July, of 2016, and then the, the ceremonial uh, coronation, if you will, of Piazza's legacy. And, and I say I was very happy to, to get that stuff into the book because, you know, I, I think that's sometimes just kind of taken for granted. Uh, you know, one of the things I kind of wanted to have intertwining throughout the book were we're showing how the Mets celebrate and, and don't celebrate their history. Uh, and, you know, the, the, those things don't show up in the box score. But those of us who go to those games who make a point if we only buy tickets to so many games we want to be there on, well, you know, we used to have old-timers day. We don't have that anymore. But when they, they have, you know, Team Hall of Fame inductions or one of the things I read about in the book that's probably mostly forgotten, it's when the Mets had a 10 greatest moments ceremony. And, you know, the acquisition of Piazza was one of them. Uh, when they had a, you know, naming the 40th anniversary team, naming the 50th anniversary team. And Piazza had already kind of, you know, woven himself into the, the history of the team right away. And it was all leading to uh, to July 24th and July 30th, the Hall of Fame induction to Cooperstown and the number retirement at City Field. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, uh, the the fan perspective, as you called it, is, is important here because I, I think if you just were coming at this as an objective party, even if you were coming at it as somebody who covered the Mets as a traditional sports writer, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, wouldn't look at it the same way. Uh, it, it wouldn't be about why Piazza mattered to the fans because, you know, if, if you're sitting in the press box, Piazza's the guy you have to go get quotes from. Uh, to us, he was, you know, he was our true north. He's the guy, you know, we revolved around. Um, in, in a way, even, you know, they put his number next to Seaver's, you know, and, and everything is first met since Seaver to have his number retired. First met since Seaver to go into the Hall of Fame as a Met. But, you know, Seaver pitched every five days. He was, of course, you know, the franchise, larger than life, greatest Met ever, no question. But, uh, you know, Piazza was an everyday fact of life, maybe not on Sundays because Todd Pratt would catch that. But uh, I, I think in a, in a way Piazza may have been the biggest figure on a day-to-day basis over a period of time in Mets history. And, you know, as, as a fan, uh, I felt that, and I kind of wanted to communicate that to anybody who was reading this. So 
that's basically yeah, how the book came to be. I, th- I think for me, I mean, you know, when you talk about especially players on the field, I mean, certainly, you know, since then, uh, obviously, you know, David Wright has had a significant impact in that role. And before that, really, the only name that comes to mind is probably Daryl. Yeah, I as think far as everyday um, players. Yeah, Daryl. The sad part about Daryl is I, th- I think there's always going to be a, a tinge of, you know, he could have been even better, which yep. is sort of unfair <laughs> because, you know, he had his career. And, you know, pe- pending David Wright's return from injury, uh, you know, he's still the all-time home run hitter and still has all kinds of spots uh, in top fives and top tens. Uh, I think the one thing I would say about the Daryl Strawberry period is that he wasn't the guy who stood out monumentally more than everybody else because he was on a team with Keith Hernandez and Gary Carter and Dwight Gooden. And that was, you know, and that's, you know, use the phrase Mount Rushmore before. Right there is, you know, four epic figures in Mets history. Sometimes I, I pinch myself thinking, you know, I used to just turn on the TV every night and see those guys playing. You know, they're, they're, they're such enormous figures in our history, but there was a time like that was what the Mets were, which still amazes me. Uh, you know, David Wright is clearly a huge, huge figure in Mets history, and I hope continues to be in the present tense. That way, uh, sometimes it just feels like there's a middle portion of David Wright's career that didn't get played because he had that great first few years, and then they moved to City Field, and then you know, at some point the injuries start kicking in until we got the spinal stenosis and, and everything else. Um, and you know, he was one of the best players at his peak in the game, but Piazza was just you know, a megastar. Came here as a megastar and got bigger somehow. Um, I, I just can't... I, you know what it is about, about David Wright that... Excuse me, Mike Piazza, that strikes me in that regard... I think back to circa 1999, 2000. Uh, I, I think of my sister and her husband, two people who don't care about baseball one whit. They knew who Mike Piazza was. They didn't know who anybody else on the Mets was. They may not have known who anybody on the Yankees was. And this was, you know, New York circa 2000, when it was hard not to know those names. But Mike Piazza was just around so much. He was in commercials, on shows. He was the example, uh, you know, script writers use. If you wanted to mention a Met, you knew who you were talking about. And he had that, that presence in New York. He had that presence in Los Angeles and, and brought it here. You, know, you think about so many guys that have to get who let you down for the big name, and that wasn't Piazza at all. So, you know, again, it, it, it's sort of a, a, you know, one of those things you, you can't measure with, with a sabermetrically, but I, I think just in terms of, you know, a guy who not only was a, a big name, but was bigger than everybody else on the team, and the team was doing well. And generally speaking, although certainly not, nobody's ever been immune to uh, a backlash when he's not doing well, uh, I, I think, you know, he continues to hold that place and, and never really didn't hold that place in the hearts of Mets fans. You know, it's one of the things from from my standpoint, you know, is, you know especially coming in, you know, to – Coming into fandom basically at birth, but really kind of coming into it in my own at the very the very dawn of the '80s, as it were. Um, the the just as the light at the end of the very long tunnel was starting to be seen um, in the distance. But um, the thing I always compare with Piazza is is I I've, and this is not meant this is not meant as a a diss on Gary Carter, who is among my absolute favorites, and I, I adored him as a Met. But 
there's there's I think the Piazza trade when he came in was was for me kind of what I'd hoped the Gary Carter trade was. I kind of hoped we were getting a guy in his prime. Now Carter, both of them were two guys I hated in the other uniform. <laughs> I'll be honest, right up until the minute they t- popped into blue and orange, they were um, among my most hated players because Car- Carter and Piazza both were Met killers, they, uh, and you know. You kind of got this sense of pomposity from from uh, Piazza that uh, you know you just, you, you just didn't like him. I didn't like the guy until he was on my side. I realized, never mind. I kind of like the attitude now that it's for my guys. But um, the um, I think you know the, if there was ever a disappointment about Gary is is that we really got his last two years of his prime. Mike was the other way around. We checked in right at the beginning of his prime, and we got to ride a good couple of years through before his decline started towards the end of that contract. And I think that. Uh, you know, when you sign a catcher to a seven-year contract after that first season, uh, which was the point where it's like I was holding off to that contract was signed to buy my Piazza jersey because I didn't want to be that one fool who bought one in the half season we had him. Uh, but um, the, um, the 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 thing about you know you knew that contract was too long when he signed it. He's a catcher. He was going to break down, and the, you kind of hoped maybe the transition to first base would go better than it <laughs> inevitably did in its half inning. But, um, you know, I think that uh, Piazza was everything, you know, Met fans had been hoping for, for, you know, clearly one of the best offensive players to ever play. He played most of his years with us in his prime, obviously. Last two plus or so, he was breaking down pretty badly. But uh, the, the, the reality of it is, you know, as far as Met player acquisitions, you know, bringing in guys from outside the team, you know, Really, him and Beltron are the only two guys we brought in in their prime and pretend, you know continued to be everything we'd hoped. You know, we thought we might have been getting that with Alomar a few years later, but the, no, that wasn't the case. Uh, but you know, a lot of these guys that we've brought in over the years from outside the organization have been arguably past their prime. I'm not talking about Keith, but I'm not even talking about Gary to an extent, although he was towards the tail end. Both of them were towards the Taylor, you know, slightly end of their prime. But um, the, the reality was these are guys that we got to see their best years in New York. Yeah. Well, I guess generally speaking, if somebody is a big enough name, if he's a, either a free agent or he's on the cusp of free agency and somebody wants to trade him to you, it means that he's already put about six years at least behind him. So depending on how beaten up he is, and certainly a catcher would be beaten up, you're going to be getting somebody who is, by definition, either the second half of his prime or, you know, toward the very end. I mean, to to me, a a guy who fits that description perfectly is Pedro Martinez because we got one really good year out of Pedro Martinez and then about a third to a half of a really good year, and then the injuries kicked in and, you know, with a few exceptions – Nothing, unfortunately, and you know it's it's probably hard to remember now what a huge acquisition he was and what a huge figure he was. But ironically, the last year of Piazza was when Pedro Fever kind of started kicking in. Then you have a guy like Beltron, who also the same year. Uh, it's kind of hard to remember that Piazza is part of the same team at some point as those guys and Wright and Reyes and people you associate with a later era. But, you know, that's the way things overlap in this game. Um, you know, Beltron needed a year to really settle in. Uh, the first year, you know, I remember writing something comparing him to George Foster, which if 
you know, is is not complimentary. If you were if you were in Cincinnati, that would sound like a great thing. But if you're a Mets fan, that's like, ugh. Um, and you know, you mentioned Alomar. There are all all kinds of examples like that. You know, the great thing about Piazza is that right away, you know, give or take a month of hitting its double plays and things like that, uh, he was terrific from the get go as a Met. I mean, the, the numbers were never quite as eye popping as they were with the Dodgers, probably because he was younger then. And maybe nobody knew how to pitch to him yet, but he never hit three sixty two here, but he didn't have to. Uh you know, he was surrounded by a really good cast those first few years. They built a really good team around him and he was, you know, the star. He he filled the role that you wanted. Uh, you know, well it's interesting, you know, when Carter came in you know, it was a team clearly on the verge of, boy, if we could just get a guy like Gary Carter in here, we're going to be great. And it's exactly what happened. Keith comes in at a point where the team isn't any good, but, you know, at least to the naked eye, but there's all this young talent underneath, and it took, all, you know, half a season to gel, and Keith was fine, and then he you know, showed us what all the fuss was about of the, the year after. But Piazza was just, you know, go. And even though it was seven years that they signed him to after that audition, if you will, uh, the four or so months as a Met in 1998 where they came up just shy of the playoffs, uh, you could not sign him to essentially whatever he wanted. And I don't even remember thinking about it. I don't remember thinking, God, seven years, he's going to be, what, 37 when his contract runs out and got a, a guy who is been catching all all those years, probably not going to hit that much. Didn't occur to me at all. All I thought was, we got Mike Piazza, now we get to keep Mike Piazza. This is going to be amazing. And fortunately, for enough years, it was. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the crossover, and I, I I just popped back thanks to the folks at Baseball Reference and took a look at the opening day lineup from the 2005 New York Mets where you have Jose Reyes leading off. You've got Beltran in center, Cliff Floyd out and left, right at third base, and Pedro Martinez starting the game. And then rather, rather tragically, Kaz Matsui at second base. But that's beside the point. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was, that was a weird year, thinking back. And in true that year. form, Eric Valent was the starting right fielder that day. So, I mean, you know. Yeah, you had all kinds of guys kind of filtering in and out. I guess you'll have that most years. But I remember, there's some, some reason that the name that pops to mind is Miguel Cairo who was, was on the team that whole year, may have been on the table list at some point. Doug Minkiewicz was there. Uh, you know, l- later in the year you had, you know, the, the three weeks of Mike Jacobs and uh, Victor Diaz's return. And, you know, I could throw all kinds of names out there. But the point being that it was a, a team in transition, which was nice because what we were transitioning from was, you know, those awful Art Howe years, which seems like they were longer than two years. That's because they were battling it. Yeah, they're always battling. They're always coming up a little shy. Uh, really, the, the three years prior to '05 for Piazza, and uh, I, I will tell you that I had a lot more written on that. I, I had to. It might not surprise you to know I had to trim a lot from my original manuscript for for space reasons, and like I kind of wanted to get more into uh, kind of the, the decimation of those years after '01. But I, I think you know the, the point is made in the book that that these you know these teams and players kind of come and go and, uh, you know, you the fan are going to stick with them no matter what, but, you know, coming out of 04, uh, you know, the first base year for Piazza, essentially, 
Uh, you know, the Mets had, what, lost 86 games, 95 games, and 91 games those three years. And you, know, you, you were subject to articles in the New York papers then, which, which were, I remember one, and it wasn't, it couldn't have been just one, because I remember reading it enough, which was, you know, the Mets probably aren't even the second most popular team in New York. The Red Sox are probably the second most popular, which is ludicrous. But when, when you're writing from 30,000 feet, as these guys in the press box would, uh, certainly before they had the opportunity to interact with anybody on, on social media, uh, you know, you would get that impression because nobody was going to the games and everybody was kind of depressed and the Mets weren't doing very well. Um, you know, that was a strange time for, for Piazza because it was the first time it really wasn't his team anymore. You know, it was the first year, and I, I collect these things so I was able to check this, the first year they put out a pocket schedule without his picture on it since 1998. He was literally no longer the face of the franchise. But <clears throat> as that team was kind of getting itself together, kind of at warp speed because it wasn't exactly – you know, the 80s where you knew you were building with young players and then you added the pieces. It's like, let's go out and get the pieces, meaning Beltran and, and Martinez. We have a couple of young players in Reyes and Wright, and we'll figure the rest out next year, which is what they wound up doing. But, uh, you know, Piazza was going to call the middle of that. Um, you know, the best thing I can say about Willie Randolph vis-a-vis Piazza is that he stopped playing the first base, which was just not his position. And, again, it might have been something – that if they had put their minds to it in 2000 after Overwood left, which I always thought was a baseball tragedy, um, maybe he could have become a decent first baseman. But, you know, Piazza was a catcher. He wanted to hit home runs as a catcher. And he called good games. You know, he, he brought that team into the playoffs. He called Al Leiter's two-hitter uh, that, that won the, the wild card in 99. So I, I can't totally blame his, you know, less than enthusiastic approach to first base. But, uh, again, yeah, I think 2005 is an important element in the, uh, the Piazza story because, you know, we, we had the opportunity as fans to kind of know he was leaving and, you know, to stand and applaud every time he did anything on the field. And it was just different from, you know, being angry at a guy like Strawberry saying, oh, how could he, how could he leave as a free agent or being mad at Frank Cashing for not wanting to re-sign him and, uh, or, you know, watching a guy like Seaver twice be, you know, one cent packing literally and once – be left to be, you know, taken in something ridiculous called the compensation draft. And I could, you know, throw all kinds of examples out there. Point being that, you know, we got to say goodbye to Piazza, and I, I think we kind of liked the feeling. And he liked the feeling because he kept coming back, and we kind of kept saying hello and goodbye to him again. And, um, so, you know, and getting, okay. and, getting back from the, and getting back from the West Coast, you know, as, as infrequently as I do, one of the, one of the most uh, poignant moments I can remember, I, I, I did get back once during the 2005 season, but it was early in the season, and, for the subway series. And, um, but I did make it back the following year for his first game back as a Padre. And I tell you the feeling in that building when he came to play, came to the plate, his, and his music cranked up and that stadium went nuts. It was you know, almost a playoff atmosphere. And, but from a different aspect, I almost lost it, man. That was, that was one of those moments where as a fan, you go, I don't know if I should be cheering or weeping or both, man, because this is rough. But awesome. Yeah, I was there that night too, and it was it, it played with your instincts as much as your emotions. Because when he comes up, remember it was the first or second inning. Um, he's facing Steve Traxel the first night, and or maybe it wasn't the first second inning, but when he got a hit the first time, uh, his first 
David a second at bat of the night, whatever. Yeah. You know, of course I applauded. I mean, the Mets are 10 or more games in front at that point, and you can be a little generous where that's concerned. He comes up. The next guy up is a young Adrian Gonzalez, who I wasn't all that familiar with at the time. And just because for years, whoever batted after Piazza, let's say it was Ventura, I'd be like, come on, Robin, get it, get it, you know. Adrian Gonzalez, who I don't know from a home the head, comes up and like, okay, Adrian, let's go. And I'm like, what am I doing? But I'm just so used to rooting for Piazza. Ergo, I'm rooting for Piazza's team out of instinct. Uh, I put an end to that pretty quickly. Uh, Just sort of as as the Mets Mets fans did the next night, if you recall, uh, they were facing Pedro, um, one of his last starts or last good starts that year, unfortunately. And, you know, Piazza hits a home run off Pedro, and everybody can be happy about it for a minute. And then he hits another home run off Pedro, and you can kind of hear the boos, maybe good-naturedly, but uh, it's sort of like, okay, you know, we we love you, Mike, but uh, we don't know how we feel about you, you know, beating us and beating Pedro more than once. And then he nearly wins the game, I think, in the eighth inning. It's a long fly ball off Aaron Heilman, Beltron catches, and uh, that that would have tested everybody's uh, dual loyalties. But again, there's just again, it goes back to the idea that there there was something about the connection. And I don't know if it was because, uh, and I, I think that is one of the reasons. I guess I, I I should pretend that I know since I wrote a book about it. But uh, you know, the moment in time that he came in was after this you know terrible period in Mets history. Those even though they've begun to dig themselves out, you know, in, in honorable fashion, circa 1997, which I. I personally love that season. I love Todd Hundley. Sort of like you, I wasn't a huge Piazza fan from a distance because we had Todd Hundley. And why would I want to replace Todd Hundley if he was healthy, which of course he wasn't. But I, I think part of the, the connection to, to Piazza that we make, and, and whether it's fans who came of age during Piazza's you know, ascent uh, or just before it, you know, he in a way kind of rescued us. Uh, kind of kind of brought us up from the shadows because even if we we become sort of a good team, uh, we were getting you know no to sound like Ronnie Dangerfield, but we were getting no respect for it. Uh, it was it was impossible to be a Mets fan in New York in the late '90s when you had the Yankees suddenly winning World Series and Piazza. If I, you can't say he changed everything because the Yankees still won a couple of World Series, but you know he made it fun and he made it vital and. I, I just think, you know, the fan base just has never instinctively forgotten that. And I think that's why he's so welcome back every uh, every time he shows up. Yeah, I mean, I think that the two words that come to mind as far as the acquisition of, of Piazza was relevance and credibility. And they were instant with this team. Yeah, because you, you, you were trying to get by as a contender. Remember, this was a wild card contender. Idiot wins the year before. Uh, a, a revelation. Bobby Valentine proved to be the right man after Dallas Green. And, you know, you had all kinds of nice stories sprouting up. John Oliver coming from Toronto, Rick Reed coming off the scrap heap, Edgardo Alfonso becoming an everyday player. But, you, you know, you needed a bat in the middle of that lineup and you needed somebody to put on the pocket schedule, shall we say. And Todd Hundley was the superstar of the team and he was out. You, you could not tread water for much longer from the middle of May. You know, you were getting by with Tim Spear, and Rick Wilkins and Jim Tatum and, you know, a little bit of Todd Pratt and Alberto Castillo. And that's, that's I think, five catchers already who all saw time before May 22nd. So, um, you know, it was a bold move. Um, you know, to this was something the Mets, 
and I think partly because of what happened in the early nineties where the book begins, you know, that, that whole crew of Benia and Coleman and Saberhagen and Murray, who were good to great players, uh elsewhere and they would have success again, uh, it just didn't work for them here. And so the Mets became gun shy. The Mets didn't want to throw money around and Joe McElvain wanted to you know, build from within and make smart trades, which is great, but you know, you needed something else, and that's you know that, that's what Steve Phillips was installed to do. That was his skill set as the, uh, the press. I knew that word was coming. Yeah, so you know the, the stars were aligning, and you know he he became the northern star. And from there, uh, you know, if you were a Mets fan, you're everything in the late '90s is BP and AP before and after Piazza. You know, I think too. Also, you know, one thing that I that I've learned, I think that there is a, a generation of Met fans that that are got a little used to the success um, that the team would have. Um, you know, obviously not necessarily winning World Series, but on the field, so that when the you know the most recent downturn from you know '08, you know, from the, the moment Shea's doors closed until you know a season and a half ago, um, the uh, you know, I think that the you know this also this book also offers an opportunity to understand what the truly dark days were in one of the darker periods of Mets history in those early '90 teams that led up to you know why Piazza. I mean, it, it's to some extent I think to love and appreciate Piazza as much as you did, to some extent you had to be there in those early '90s to know where we came from, to know the worst team money could buy, to understand the 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 uh, Torborg era, the the art you know and. And um, the you know the Dallas Green era in there as well, you know to understand what this team wasn't doing, to understand the pay cuts that went on that weren't necessarily generated specifically by the Wilpons, that as much to do with Nelson Doubleday as they had anything else, but to to see that you know this this team has had pulled its uh, pulled itself out of the fire before, you know to to show that yeah you know what maybe not all is lost this time around, maybe maybe some of these young guys will develop. And uh, you know we'll see some good things, and you know it, it's it's hard to, it's hard to explain how much we appreciate you know what Noah is doing, what Degrom is doing, to a lesser extent what Harvey has done, without understanding the the disaster that was Generation K. Yeah, I mean, it would be, you know, so much of baseball, and I guess so much of life is cyclical, and there's probably a piece of us that can never imagine, you know, when we're winning, you know, ninety plus games. Uh, that we're ever going to be back in that situation where we're losing 90-plus games. But the, those things do turn around. So sometimes precedent you know, is not all, um, but it's, it's hard to forget Generation K is kind of a cautionary tale of great-looking young pitchers and how much you can count on them. Because as it turned out, you couldn't count on the three pitchers who constituted Generation K at all. After a, a certain moment, again, it was a lot of fun. Jason Isringhausen, Paul Wilson, and Bill Pulsar, but those three guys never pitched in the same rotation. Uh, we've gotten so much more out of, out of Thor and Harvey and Degrom and, and Max, and hopefully Wheeler again. Yeah, we haven't seen those five guys together yet. Um, one of my favorite things in, in putting the book together was rediscovering a section of the 1995 official yearbook. And you certainly wouldn't want to buy the unofficial yearbook. But in the official yearbook, uh, they had so little to sell, 
especially coming out of the replacement spring. They probably didn't even know who was going to be on the Mets when they went to press. They put together this big section about how the Mets in the year 2000, uh, what they might be under the idea of, well, let's just say that it's all guys who haven't played for the Mets before 1995 who are in the minor leagues now. And it was, you know, in, in retrospect, fascinating to, to revisit 20-plus years later because on one hand, they were touting the likes of Edgardo Alfonso and Ray Ordonez and uh, Jay Payton, all contributors to their playoff teams. And they, of course, were talking about Isringhausen and Pulsifer, who were you know, due up that year. And on the other hand, there were names like Brooke Fordyce and I think Julio Zarilla and uh, a couple of guys who either had cups of coffee or, or you know, got locked out of Starbucks, shall we say. So, you know, you never know what you're going to get. And I guess one of the things that fascinates me about that, the team that became the Piazza Mets, the ones that Bobby V steered to the playoffs twice, was that you know, there really wasn't a straight line. In, in building them, you know, when you go back and look at the history of the 69 Mets, you can talk about all those young players they were scouting and drafting and signing and all that young pitching, even though it was no, no doubt shocking that they would win 100 games and win the World Series as soon as they did. You know, that was a team that was coming together. And, you know, we've alluded to the way that the Mets of the 80s were coming together and the pieces you were adding and you kind of knew something special was happening. You know, you had a You've had all kinds of plans go awry um, throughout the 1990s. I mean, even even the, the the miserable team that we walk in on in this book, the one late 92 at 93, you know, the idea was that this is going to replace, you know, the the disappointing 91 Mets, and the idea being that 91 Mets were going to somehow pick up where. Daryl Strawberry left off, but it's okay. We'll get Vince Coleman and Hubie Brooks. And, well, that didn't work out. We had, you know, Greg Jeffries hasn't worked out. Kevin McReynolds hasn't worked out. we got to go get a bunch of stars. Well, that didn't work out. Well, we got to get rid of all the stars. <laughs> and we got to just kind of start from ground zero. And they tried that a couple of times and stopped and started. And, you know, they brought in some unsung players who had great seasons, you know, singular Great seasons in 1996, and Lance Johnson, Bernard Gilkey, uh, Tom Hunley coming, you know, to the all-star level that he did. And then that doesn't hold. So, you know, so, so much just didn't go right, but enough did. And then, you know, they were in a position to add Piazza. And, you know, from there, you know, they, they added a bunch of players who I think, you know, we remember fondly, like, you know, Ventor and... Melvin Moore and Ricky Henderson and Pat Mahomes, you know, just a weird, diverse group of players who all came under, you know, one tent to give us an unforgettable October and then kind of had to re- redo it halfway because a bunch of those guys were gone and start over in 2000 and, and get a little further. So, um, so it, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to see it coming. Uh, you could talk about young players and say, boy, this, this team's, farm system looks stacked, but, you know, you, you never know until they actually get here and, and stay healthy and succeed. And, you know, just the the payoff is that you, you as a fan hung with it all those years, that, you know, you didn't walk away. Maybe, maybe you didn't pay quite as much attention in 2011 as you did in 2015. That's, you know, that's just being human, I think. But the, the fact that you were on board the whole time, uh, that you didn't just get a, a you didn't just get a text alert that the Mets got UNS Cespedes and you decided this will be a great team to follow. Now I haven't watched the Mets since Shea Stadium closed. No, because you were you were with it the whole time, and 
same thing, uh, you know, in the 90s. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there were people who drifted away when the 86 team began to dissolve who were, you know, brought right back on board that day in 1998 when, hey, I've heard of Mike Piazza. Maybe the Mets aren't so bad after all. But, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, the, the, the bulk of it, the uh, the core of, of Mets fandom, and I guess the core of fandom for any team is, you know, the people who stick with the team, good times and bad. And uh, the bad times are terrible. But, boy, when the good times get here, it's it's so much better because of it. Well, and the thing, too, also about the dark days of the 90s is not only did uh, you have the terrible times you expected to, to, to stick through, which I did, and many of us did, uh, you also had the time of, well, nothingness. The the near you know nearly full season we lost to baseball. Yeah, and that was you know the, the Mets were kind of finding their 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 grip again on reality after '93. They came out of the gate in '94 actually looking like a major league team, you know, except for the the silly tail on the uniform uh, under the, under the word Mets, which I never really understood. But uh, you know that was kind of an, an up and down period. Uh, you know, they made a couple of, again, this was Joe McElvain's uh, specialty, making smart, small trades, getting Jose Vizcaino and David Segui, and when David Segui was injured, Rico Bronia appeared, guys like that. Uh, at the same time that you're kind of closing the door on yesterday, because that was the end of the Dwight Gooden era, uh, in, in officially, once he unfortunately tested positive for cocaine again. Um, and then there's no baseball. The Mets are almost a 500 team. And the season ends in August, and you don't really know what's going to happen next. And you come back in February the next year, and they're telling you that the Mets are in spring training. But it's not really the Mets because there's something called replacement baseball <laughs> because the owners have decided enough losing to the Players Association. We're just going to throw 25 guys into these uniforms and call them the Mets or the Braves or the Marlins or whoever. And fortunately, future Supreme Court Justice Sonja Sotomayor put an end to that travesty. And you had to kind of start over again. It, it seemed like whatever happened in 94, where the Mets were concerned, had no carryover to 95. They got up to an abysmal start. And, you know, you were just happy to have baseball again. At least I was. Uh, I was never one of those people who said, oh, I can't go back to the ballpark. I'm mad about the Chicago. I was there as soon as I could be. And, uh, you know, it was just a, a stop and start kind of traffic flow for the Mets until Bobby V came along and until you know, the pieces started falling into place in 97. But again, they were not the pieces you would have guessed looking at, uh, looking at the yearbook or looking at the depth charts in 95. And the, the Mets just kind of had to... But it was probably the most improvisational era, <laughs> a successful one in Mets baseball. Because all the other successful eras, you know, as I mentioned before, 69, 86, those periods, you can kind of see them coming. You can even, in retrospect, look at the 2015 Mets and see how many of those guys like Daniel Murphy and Lucas Duda, in addition to David Wright, you know, really hung around a while, and the pitching was coming. And, you know, it was kind of a hodgepodge and, you know, stop and start and experimenting, but somehow, you know, we had a team that gave us, really from 97, predating Piazza, through 01, uh, a team that you could not stop watching for five years. It was always in contention for something right down to the last week, if not you know, the last day and sometimes, you know, toward late October. Um, and who knows, maybe maybe that's what made it feel like such a, you know, surreal, dramatic time to be a Mets fan. But, I, you know, again, I've been a fan of the same 
going on. It's hard, hard for me to say this. Going on 50 years, and you know, I've been with this team since 1969, and I, I still think that's my favorite period. Uh, you know, the, the Bobby V, Mike Piazza, cresting 99 to 2000 Nets. It was just, a, you, you just couldn't miss a pitch. You 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 knew you were going to miss something. You know, I think I I I'm. I would agree with you. I mean, obviously having come in just a little bit later, but, uh, you know, certainly let's, let's just say apart from 1969 to 73, not a lot of memorable baseball in between, uh, in, in between where you started and <laughs> where I picked up, but, um, you know, darn that 77 season, man, I missed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, the, um, the, uh, the reality, I think, I think for me, the nine, those nineties teams. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the, at the same time, I think if – and keep in mind, I am a traditionalist. It took me a while to buy into this whole you – know, buy into various changes along the way. I think if the playoff system that exists today existed in the 80s, I, I probably would feel differently, honestly. Yeah, and you, you could only play the cards you're dealt. And, exactly. You know, this this the, the team that we just watched go to the playoffs needed – Although actually, I guess they won the first wild card, and if there was only one wild card, we would have played the Cubs last year because we wouldn't have had to deal with Madison Bumgarner and the Giants. But uh, you know, this team where it was sitting in August of 2016 needed every chance it could get. So you know, some years you get the feeling that you can give a perfectly decent Mets team eight playoff berths to, to aim at, and they would somehow finish ninth in the National League. And I don't mean, you know, ninth place, 1968 style. Um, some you know, they just have this habit in some years of just falling short and, and aggravating you no end. And, you know, which, which makes the years where they don't, and they, they find a way in as they did in 99 and 2000 and as they did in 15 and 16. When, when in none of those years it was necessarily obvious they were going those places, uh, makes you appreciate them even more. Um, you know, I think... Uh, you mentioned 1977. Yeah, those were horrible years, the late 70s and the early 80s, before we, we could see why at the end of the tunnel. But again, you know, I'm, I'm, I wasn't happy about living through 1977, 78, and 79 when I was doing it. But, you know, when, when 1984, 5, and 6 rolled around, you know, I was a, I was a better fan for it because I, I knew the difference. And, you know, listen, somebody... I'm, I'm sure somebody had better seats than I did at Chase to in those years because they knew somebody uh, or they had more money or whatever, and they did not know who Joel Youngblood and Lee Mazzillian, well, Lee Mazzillian was on the 86 Mets, so, but you know, you know what I mean. They did not know who Sergio Ferrer was, and they did not know who Phil Mankowski was, and they were perfectly happy showing up getting tickets that I couldn't get and then, you know, going off to whatever the hot night spot was in Manhattan in those days. But they couldn't have possibly enjoyed it as much as, you know, somebody like me did for having lived through those years. So, you know, you, you, you take the bad with the good on the condition that you can be led to believe that someday there will be good. And uh, that's what we got uh, in the Piazza years. That's fortunately what we're getting now. Well, that, yeah, it's it's like the difference, as I used to describe it with my friends, it's the difference between showing up day of game and getting a 10th row field box seats on the first base side and then uh, having to get in line for hours at A&S to get to, to the Ticketron outlet uh, in years yeah, after you know to get tickets months in advance. Yeah, I remember sitting in the kinds of seats you described, field level, 
1981, a rainy night in late April. The Mets were playing the Pirates. The power went out on the scoreboard. Uh, the Mets were losing nine to nothing. Dave Roberts was pitching for the Mets. Uh, some guy was harassing John Stearns at who made an error playing third base, and just the whole night, a friend and I who went, you know, we could always cheer each other up by saying "Yo, Stearns," because that's what the guy just kept yelling. But I had great seats, and it, it, it's a fun memory in retrospect. But it was, you know, it was a nine nothing loss in progress, and it rained. Um, five years later, I'm sitting in probably than row Q of Section 46, and if you remember Shea Stadium, uh, it only went to Section 48, and the Mets are playing a, uh, a doubleheader against the Cardinals on a Sunday afternoon, and they're winning the nightcap 9-2, to two, and I'm a million miles from home plate, and I'm much happier in that memory. <laughs> I am. I'm happy to have the, the, uh, the Yo Stearns memory, but I'm watching the Mets build their you know lead to 19 games or whatever it was at the time. So, um, yeah, I had lousier seats, but I had a, I had a better team. And, you know, ultimately, uh, you, you, you kind of take the trade-off. You do. Well, before, before I let you go, of course, obviously, the, the book is out now, Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon, Star, um, available from all the usual outlets, uh, including, of course, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all those different things. Um, I know you've done a couple of signings so far. Any more coming up that people should know about? Uh, the next one that is scheduled is, and, and this is beautiful timing, uh, the date is June 15th, the 40th anniversary of Tom Seaver being traded to Cincinnati um, that the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse. I won't Clubhouse be acknowledging the, that anniversary, I'm just saying. The fellow who owns the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse, which is like a, a miniature shrine to baseball in the city of New York, uh, who has been kind enough to have me in before, and has baseball writers and poets and so forth, um, asked me if June 15th would be okay. And my first instinct was to look at the schedule and see, oh, the Mets are playing the Nationals that night. I don't, you know, I don't want to be doing this if the Mets are actually playing. But he says, it's the 40th anniversary of the Seaver trade, and maybe we can make it, you know, we can make June 15th with a year ending in a seven a good thing. And I said, I can't argue with that. So uh, Thursday night, June 15th at Bergino in Manhattan, Hope to, hope to be able to uh, announce a couple more that will take place maybe in between now and then. Uh, I would ask your listeners to uh, keep an eye on Faith and Fear and Flushing and follow me on Twitter at Greg underscore Prince, and uh, I will happily promote those uh, until you're sick of hearing about them. And uh, you know, one of the things I always tell people, Faith and Fear is one of my favorite blogs. I read it every day. I enjoy the writing that you and Jason do. Of course, I uh, always enjoy the books as well, and most of all, I enjoy the friendship and appreciate the time today. Well, I enjoy coming on with you. I don't even know what I was going to say. I mean, I, I'm not sure how long you had this uh, this program set for, but if, if we had stopped recording and just kept talking, I think I would have enjoyed it just as much. But I appreciate the opportunity to, to reach more people, and, and thank you very much for the kind words, and I feel the same way toward you. Absolutely, sir. We will talk soon, my friend. Appreciate the time, and, and, uh, and actually, we're right on time, so it's perfect. Beautiful. Thank you. Great. Greg Prince, of course, joining me. Thank you again for tuning in today. Again, the book, Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon Star. You can grab it at Amazon, grab it at BN.com, any of the bookstores you, that you frequent, you can find that book at, or they can get it in for you. It's published by Sports Publishing, and it's available now. 
if you want to learn about the, you know, what, from the fans' perspective about the Piazza era and what led to it, including some dark days of Mets baseball, this is a great book to read, and I highly encourage everyone to do it. Again, Faith and Fear and Flushing must read. Greg Prince's books must read. And uh, certainly appreciate everybody tuning in today to listen to some great history from one of the great historians in the Mets fan base. Next week, EJ will get the reins of the show. He'll be taking you right through to the opening day, talking Mets baseball on that final day before the regular season begins. And then I'll be back with you in two weeks to talk about the first full week of in-season baseball. That's right. Actual baseball is about to actually happen. We've got it all here all year long on hopefully a very special 2017 here on the Happy Recap Radio Show. Again, special thanks to my guest, Greg Prince. And for on behalf of EJ and Ryan, let's go Mets.